Okay. Do any of you have an old Bible that has notes all in it and it's kind of getting worn? <laughs> I was on the phone last night when the wee hours talking to someone about Scriptures and they said, well, what about Deuteronomy so-and-so? And I went to go to Deuteronomy. I couldn't find it. It wasn't there. I mean, the, the book wasn't there in my Bible. And I thought, well, this is news to me. Um, so when I got here tonight, I was showing Ken, look at my Bible here. It's just you know, torn to bits. So it's just barely hanging together. But I want to hang on to it because it's just got like gold to me, all the notes and things I have in it. And so <clears throat> he was putting the pen drive in here, and the cap came off and bounced down there. I hadn't found it yet. But he was down there digging around, and guess what he found? Deuteronomy. <laughs> so, you know, when, when something like you lose the camp or something, there's always that silver lining, huh? There's a reason behind it. Anyway, thank you, Ken, and thank you, Lord, again. How about that rain we got? We got two inches at my house. Two inches. I told Carrie, I better start saying a rain prayer in the middle of a service again. <laughs> I'm certainly thankful for that because it's getting awfully dry. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and during that time we have the opportunity to name privately to God the Father any unconfessed sins, which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for Your grace. We are thankful that we don't have to carry our own burdens. That we know what's next. It's all because You loved us first and You have revealed Yourself to us. May we never forget how important You are, Your Word is, and that we continue to exploit Your grace to the max, which means we can never exploit it because it's always greater than our need. We thank You for who and what You are. You are our salvation and You are our strength. So we pray that You will help us to concentrate tonight as again we get another view, the high privilege and honor to feed upon those things that You have revealed to us so that we can better reflect Your glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We were in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you'd like to go there in your Bibles. Paul just completed a wonderful expression of his affection towards his beloved. Thessalonians. And then in chapter 3, he starts revealing his great concern that he had for them because they were experiencing affliction, even persecution. And he was away from them. 
And if you'll remember, last time I ended on the fact that uh, they were under duress. And when I was studying for this, I, I was going to take a break. And I just, my mind was full of all the things that have to do with suffering. So I went over and sat down in the new 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 issue of Brian Call was there. And I said, well, what's it going to be about this time? And I looked at the at the title and it said, The Value of Suffering. I said, well, Lord, I guess you weren't through teaching me yet. So this was a wonderful article. And I'm not going to read the article in its completion to you, but I have, there's, I don't know if you can see this, there's spots in here that are yellow. I take the cream off the crop and give it to you. You know, sometimes... I'll read literally for hours on a particular word or a particular subject, and I will take uh, maybe articles from the Biblio Sacra and or from the Schaefer Theological Journals and go all through it, and then I'll take maybe one paragraph out of that, and I give it to you, and I think, man, that only took seconds. But I know if I would try to read the entire article to you, everybody would be kind of nodding off. Even though the spirit may be willing, the flesh is weak. Anyhow, this is written by T.A. McMahon. McMahon, I guess that's how you pronounce that. He is the co-pilot at the Brian Call. And he starts out by saying that he has really been thinking a lot about suffering lately because he had some major surgery done. And then he's quick to point out that his surgeries are nothing compared to what a lot of people that he knew is suffering because there's suffering going on everywhere. But then he gets to uh, my first point that I highlighted here. He says, I'm concerned about the prevailing attitude in American Christendom germane to suffering which is avoided at all costs. Isn't that pretty much the attitude here in America? Uh, people don't like pain. They don't want pain. And that's, uh, that's understandable. But one reason I think the pharmaceutical companies are doing so good is for that very reason, avoid suffering at all costs. Well, some suffering is unavoidable. And if you want to go take a pain pill every time um, you bump your elbow, well, that's up to you. I don't take pain medicine, period. When I broke my wrist, still have the scar here, was there at the hospital, and this nurse came in and she had a, a syringe, and she said, what, and I said, what is that for? They all, that always gets my attention. And she said, this is for the pain. I said, I don't want it. She said, well, you don't have to be macho. It's okay. You can have a, I said, believe me, if I thought I had to have it, I'd be asking for it. But those shots cost over $100 usually. And I could manage the pain. I didn't want the side effects, so I just said, no thanks. And so I didn't get the, the pain medicine. But as a rule, in, in our country, and really, really I guess around the world, people think that it's legitimate and it's okay to avoid suffering at all costs. And then the next phrase he says in another paragraph is, suffering is a consequence of sin. 
There was no suffering until there was sin. Sin brings suffering into the world. He says, Divine justice was perfectly satisfied through our Savior's full uh, payment for our sins. Nevertheless, temporal suffering remains. You understand what he's saying? Just because we suffer does not mean that the payment for sins was not taken care of on the cross. He just made the point that suffering is a consequence of sin. Christ took care of the sin problem. No one is condemned for their sins, but we still have temporal, that meaning temporary, suffering. And then he asks, asks the question, why? Why we still have this temporary suffering? He says, although the world can point to some successes in minimizing suffering, its most noble and far-reaching attempts do little to either confine the amount or to cover the extent of it. So all the things that we have to mediate pain in our lives, we still have it, don't we? And, and we're not just talking about physical pain. There's all different types of pain. Buddhists believe that desire is the cause of all suffering and therefore teaches that ceasing to desire solves the problem. Hindus hope for the elimination of suffering through a process of reincarnation. So the Buddhists just think that if you don't have any desires, you don't have to worry about suffering. And the Hindus think that you can avoid suffering in the process of reincarnation. In other words, Hindus believe that when you die, you just go, you, you are reincarnated into another being, another creature, whatever it may be. And if you've really been a good person, then when you are reincarnated, you're going to come out as an eagle or some magnificent creature. But if you didn't do so good, you might come out as a housefly or snake or something like that. Uh, by the way, what does the Bible have to say about that? Y'all finish this, this verse for me. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Once to die. That's all you need to have to refute that. Anyway, he says they believe that each improved go-around will su supposedly lessen the eventuality and the end eventually of suffering. Healing and prosperity movement that commands a large part of the so-called Christian television. Uh, this is another idea with regards to pain and suffering. Followers of this movement promote the false idea that suffering was done away with at the cross. That's what they promote. Therefore, this teaching claims issues that produce suffering are caused by a lack of faith on the part of the sufferer. As error begets error, the proponents of healing and prosperity distort biblical faith into a method that can be used to ward off illnesses and bring about riches. And that's a dastardly thing. You see, that sells pretty well in America, but it doesn't in third world countries. They know better. But what, what, what's so dastardly about that is they will go to someone who is ill and they'll do their razzmatazz. I don't know. You know they're not much different than the witch doctors that would shake bones and rattle beads and smoke and all the other things and 
they do their little razzmatazz and they say, okay, now, you know, you've seen some of them touch them and they're supposed to fall back and be healed and everything. And there are times when that may happen. They might be healed. Most of the time they're not. And when they're not, what is so horrible about it is that the false... The false teacher is going to allege that the reason they're not healed is because they don't have enough faith. They already feel bad. But by the time the false teacher is through with them, they feel worse. I mean, they came in feeling bad because they had an illness. And then when they leave, they still have the illness, but now they've been told it's their fault. By the way, I'm not reading the article. These are just comments I'm making on the side here. And I did say that sometimes they are healed. And we have to remember that God is not the only one in the supernatural business. And there are times that Satan can, can heal people in order to uh, try to have them believe the lie. Now he goes on and says, This led to the doctrine that one's belief is the determination of one's condition. Thinking that you have an illness is a negative it's negative thinking which causes illness. Positive thinking, on the other hand, brings about good health and prosperity. Mankind in this system becomes the arbiter of his condition by his thoughts. So there are those, there's, this is what uh, part of, of the belief system in the Christian science. They believe if you have a disease, well, it's your fault. You've been thinking negatively. And again... <laughs> That pour salt on the wound. The person already is feeling poorly for whatever reason. And then the person comes up and says, well, yeah, it's your fault. You've been thinking negatively. It brings that on. You've got to have the positive thoughts. If you have enough positive thoughts, then it's going to heal what you're saying. Now, sometimes there is a nugget of truth in this type of thing. Because it is true that if you go around, go around you go through life with a sour attitude, you're full of mental attitude sins and you're bitter, that is going to affect your health to a degree, but they take it way beyond that and say that your health, in fact, your condition and well-being is not in God's hands, it's in your hands, and this is determined by your thoughts, whether they're positive or negative. He says, in addition, being completely, let's see, um, oh yeah, he's still talking about that idea about your mentality, deciding how well you're going to be. He says, in addition to being completely blasphemous and a deadly form of occultism that deters people from seeking medical help, the healing and prosperity movement spawns ultimate rebellion in the name of God. Suffering is a condition of life to which we are all subjected. How we understand it is crucial to how we deal with it. And that's why I'm reading this to you right now because we're talking about believers who were suffering and they, they were suffering for, in a lot of different ways. Maybe some of them were ill. Maybe some of them were suffering from uh, wounds that they received from those who were persecuting them. There was all types of suffering there. And Paul was concerned, as we will see, about how they are taking the suffering. In other words, he knew it was crucial for them to understand suffering and for, for them to be able to deal with it properly. Now, the article goes on and says, 
Why would God allow suffering in the lives of those who love Him? Isn't that one you hear from time to time? If God is God of love, why is there so much suffering in the world? That's usually the way it goes. Knowing what Scripture teaches about the character of God, we can conclude that if there were no value in allowing humanity to suffer, God would not allow it. Isn't that a good place to start? God is infinitely just and righteous and full of grace and mercy. So if He is allowing suffering to exist in the world, it, there's got to be a good reason. Furthermore, a good answer to that, this isn't in the article, but why do bad things happen and people suffer? Well, the reason is, it goes right back to where he said, the consequence of sin. God gave man volition, and the reason the condition of the earth is, is the way it is now is because of man's volition. And if God was going to take over and straighten things out, He would have to do what? Take away man's volition, wouldn't He? And why is volition important? Because it resolves the angelic conflict. God is demonstrating something. He's proving something to all creatures in the entire universe that He is just and righteous and His character is impeccable. He is altogether perfect. And so we're going through this whole thing in time for God to demonstrate that. And each dispensation is another viewpoint, another way to see that His justice and righteousness is beyond anyone trying to impugn it. Back to the article. Scripture, however, sets the conditions and the time frame. Suffering is temporal for all and eternal for some. You got that? Aren't you glad that our suffering is temporary? Huh? We can say with complete surety that this too will pass. Whatever suffering you have, it's only temporary. Unless you're an unbeliever. Then your suffering is going to be eternal. I think unbelievers need to hear that from time to time. He goes on to say, For those who have not yet turned to the Lord for His salvation, their condition of suffering opens, oh, excuse me, often creates compelling opportunities for them to cry out to God for His help. Hmm, that's a pretty good reason for suffering, isn't it? Some people who defy God and think that, that Christianity and faith in Jesus Christ is just a crutch. God can pull the rug out from under them to get their attention. So that's another reason for suffering. He says, but what of the temporal suffering of those who have been born of the Spirit and have received the gift of eternal life? What, what good is that kind of suffering? And Paul says, it has, it's, it's, it's much in every way does it have a reason and, is, does, and it accomplishes good things. Here's one point. He says, a closer relationship with the Lord is the outcome of suffering. Isn't that true? I mean, I wish it wasn't. I wish we were the type of creatures that could be closest to the Lord when He pulls out, pours out His blessings in great magnitude upon us and we're so close to Him. But that is when we're, we are on the thinnest ice theologically or spiritually. 
We don't need Him. We've got everything. But it's when we recognize our frailty and how utterly dependent we are upon Him that we're the closest to Him. Then he says, he was talking about Job. He, he, he says, look at all the things that was taken away from Job. There's nobody here that has suffered like Job, nor will we suffer like Job. But what he's saying is at the end, what happened? God gave back more abundantly than what he took, more than, more than what he had before. But what, the, what he's going to say is that what he received back, which was greater than what he had lost, pales when it is compared to what he learned from the experience and how much closer he was to God. I'd like to teach Job one day. I've told you this once before. One of the greatest things about Job is that Job was trying to sort it all out. Job was a good man. He was righteous. He was wealthy. He had it all going. And unlike most people who are prosperous, he stayed in touch with the Lord. He was continuing to grow spiritually. And then he lost it all and he was trying to figure it out and he had these dumb bunny friends that would come around. Well, it's your fault. And he did you check this out and all that. And at the end, he's, 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 he starts really what he's doing is questioning God. How could you let this happen? And God doesn't answer his question. What he does is give him a barrage of questions for him to answer. Where were you, Job, when the earth was set in its place? Where were you when the oceans were created and the stars were put in their place and named? Where were you, Job? And it's just on and on, all these questions. And when God got through, Job got the point. God never answered his questions directly by saying, this is why, Job. He just asked him questions and Job figured it out for himself. And his last comment went something like, Forgive me, Lord, who am I to even question your great plan? And so, this is what we're seeing here. That we have a closer relationship to him. Now, he's, talk, he's talked about Job. Now, when he starts this sentence, he's referring to Job. He said, he discovered during his affliction, during his intense preoccupation with himself, that his personal knowledge of God was greatly constricted by his self-life. Although God restored to Job far more than Satan destroyed in his life, Job's material gain could not be compared to the temporal and eternal gain and value of his more intimate relationship with the Lord. Job's suffering experience speaks to us about our own God-restricting preoccupation with self. That's why we suffer sometimes. It's a get a little wake-up call. Just a little, hey, don't forget what's important. Don't be so preoccupied with yourself that you can't see the forest for the trees, essentially. He says... By the example of earlier saints who suffered even more, he said women, women received their dead raised to life again. This is, the, you, you know, we've, we've studied that when we're talking about the difference between resuscitation and resurrection. And others were, were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain, listen to this, 
a better resurrection. If someone, I mean, there were guys that were died by the sword. They were they were run through with a sword or a spear or an arrow. Some were burned at the stake. Some were sawn in half. And they had the option, denounce Jesus Christ and you can go free. We'll give you your life. And they essentially said, that is no life. I would rather suffer this because I'm looking forward to a what? Better resurrection. We have so many believers today that just hope that they're going to be in the resurrection. They don't know what the resurrection is. It's some kind of ethereal thought that maybe some, some uh, small vestige of hope that they're going to wind up in heaven through this thing called a resurrection. They don't know anything about it. Certainly they don't know that there is a better resurrection, meaning they'll have a better resurrection body for all eternity. By the way, that was in Hebrews 11, 35 through 39. Paul was whipped, beaten, imprisoned, stoned, shipwrecked, adrift at sea, dangers and journeys, weariness, painfulness, sleeplessness, often in hunger, thirst, and cold, and naked. And how did, it, how did he describe these things? Just, just, just light affliction. Just, just these little trivial things. Why could? How could he say that? You see, Paul wasn't trying to be a martyr. He wasn't trying to exp- impress anyone. He, he meant what he said. He said these are trivial compared to the weight of glory that is reserved for those who trust the Lord through all these things. Although we may not know Jesus personally. We don't know Him well enough to have experienced the depths of His power in our lives. Although we know Him personally. Although we may know Jesus personally, we don't know the depths of His power in our lives. That's what what suffering is about. Paul's great desire was for all believers to follow Him in an intimate love and personal identification he had experienced with Jesus. Paul was looking forward to the far greater experiences throughout eternity. What what did Paul have? Personal sense of eternal destiny. All these things he could keep in their proper perspective because he wasn't living for the now. He was living for the later. For the believer in Jesus, every trial of suffering is an opportunity to grow in faith, to grow in our relationship with the Lord, and to see Him work in our lives in a uniquely personal way that demonstrates His compassion. Did y'all get that? Do I need to read that again? I'm going to read it again. There's a, there was a lot there. This puts suffering in perspective. For the believer in Jesus, every trial of suffering is an opportunity to grow in faith. That's when your faith and your strength, your maturity the opportunity to mature accelerates, to grow in our relationship with the Lord and to see Him work in our lives in a uniquely personal way that demonstrates His compassion. And He doesn't say this, but I would say for us, for you personally and for me personally. Only God knows what each of us needs to experience and learn in order to be conformed to the image of His Son. And then he reads Colossians 1, 9 through 11. 
No trial of suffering can rob us of our joy in Christ as we are strengthened by Him. I thought that was great. I thought that was worth reading to you. That is an inspiration. Maybe that will help us all to put complaining right out of our lives. Okay. We're going to get to our our notes. Let's see where we are here. We've gone through all this and tonight we are going to begin here. First Thessalonians chapter three verse four. For indeed when we were with you we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass as you know. I don't need to to explain about when uh, this is Paul and his company writing to the Thessalonians, and he's talking, referring to when they were with the Thessalonian believers. We know that they went through there. They started the church. They had to leave under duress. So he's referring back to that short time they were together. And he says, We kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. So Paul had prepared them for the suffering that was coming their way. They shouldn't be surprised when it arrived, right? Keep telling is prolego in the Greek. That's a compound word, and you can figure it out for yourself, can't you? It's pro means before, and lego means to speak or to tell. So he told them before. But you might not recognize that this is a verb. It's an imperfect active indicative. We don't have a lot of imperfect tenses, but this is one of them. And the imperfect tense refers to an ongoing action in the past that is not completed. See, the perfect tense refers to an action that occurred in the past, but it was completed, and the emphasis is on the results of of what happened. But an imperfect tense is just saying that something continued to happen, and it never stopped. It just kept on going. And so that is uh, th- that shows that he didn't tell them once. They didn't have one Bible class on this. He was repeating over and over to them, look, I'm teaching you these things. You're a believer now. Essentially, you have a target on your back. Every one of you do. I do too. In the angelic conflict, you are a marked person to Satan and his minions. And this is what Paul was warning them about. Paul warned them over and over about the trials they would be experiencing. He wasn't writing to them to say, I told you so, but to calm them down. If you look at this, you can see how... Look look at verse 4 up here. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that you were going to suffer affliction. And it came to pass, as you know. It doesn't sound like he's saying, okay, I told you so. And in a way, he's telling them, I told you so. But he's not telling them telling them, I told you so the way that most people say, I told you so. How do most people say, I told you so? Isn't there a tone of sarcasm in there? Isn't there a snobbery, better than thou, legalistic tone? I told you so. Well, maybe, maybe I've overdone it a little bit, but that's essentially what they mean. 
So I, made, I wanted to put this little point in here so you would know that's not what Paul is doing. It doesn't give you the excuse or me the excuse to do that either. He's reminding them to calm them down. And I'm explaining that here. His purpose was to calm them down. It had to be comforting to them to hear that their suffering wasn't something unique or unusual for believers. Paul and his companions were experiencing the same thing. I mean, whenever you go through something, some painful... Well, I guess I don't know what I'm talking about here, but I'm going women anyway. I'm going to talk about the women. Uh, women that have childbirth, they, they know what it's like. And so when a woman is having a baby... Uh, I hear that it's not a, it's, it's, it hurts. And they may think that no one has ever hurt like this. But the thought that, okay, I'm a woman. Millions, billions of women have had children. So if they can do it, I can do it. I mean, this isn't something strange and unusual and unique. And so he, when he reminds them that he warned them about that, and then did you notice it says in the verse, We kept telling you, in, it says, for indeed we were with you. We kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer. Who is he including that? Himself. He's saying, look, I know it hurts. I know you have all this persecution and you're suffering. But it's not out of the ordinary. It's not something like that is uh, uh, unique. We're suffering too. And if somebody else is suffering like you're suffering... For whatever reason, it's a dynamic working there that seems to think, okay, you know, it just kind of calms you down a bit. And then we get this principle also. It's important to inform new believers that life won't be easy now that they are a child of God. And they shouldn't be surprised when adversity strikes. Because a lot of people, you know, there are some screwy ideas out there that people have. People that don't have doctrine when it comes to just life in general, it's pretty bizarre. And so when you inform them that when they become a believer, they're going to think, well, I'm a believer now. I'm going to start doing things a lot better. I'm going to be sinning less. I'm going to be really in tune to pleasing God. I'm going to be a better person. And that would normally result in what? Maybe an easier life? If you're not doing drugs, you don't have to worry about the side effects. If you're not committing crime, you don't have to worry about going to prison, usually. I mean, there's a lot of things that you might think a lot of, of the adversity is going to be cut out of your life. So they just come around and they think, okay, uh, believers pretty well have it easy. They're pleasing God and they should have a, uh, the easy road. And we have to correct that because that simply ain't so. And they will be surprised. They'll be startled and taken in thinking that something unique is happening to them. So we need to prepare them. That's what Paul was doing. Now, notice in verse 3. Are you in verse 3? All right, look at verse 3. Um, my Bible just turned upside down on me here. Wait a minute. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. So that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know. You see, I have it up here in the note right here. You yourself know. He's talking about them knowing something. And then in verse 4, we just saw it says, as you know. 
You got that? We're in chapter 3, and we've got two verses here. Verse 3 and 4. And in both these verses, he's talking about something that they know about. He's writing to them, knowing that they know about it. They knew that Paul would suffer. Paul knew that they would suffer. And Paul knew that they knew they would suffer. You got that? I mean, I think it pretty well nails it down. And yet, he thought it was necessary to send Timothy to stabilize them and bring them back a report. Bring a report back to him. And here's, the, here's what, I'm, what this is boiling down to. This illustrates how easy it is for believers who have been taught doctrine to be thrown off balance. He taught it over and over while he was there. Beware. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to suffer. Your, your world is going to be turned upside down. You got it? Now, I've said it over and over and over again. He goes away. And he gets report. There's, there's affliction. There's, there's tr- trouble there. Exactly which is what he predicted. And now he's even going to the, to, the, to the degree of taking one of his companions. He was Timothy, and he was needed desperately where they were. But he decided to send them, him back in order to strengthen their faith and to teach them again. This is what we told you would happen. Now it's happened. I guess you could, you'd nearly have to be a pastor to, to realize the impact of this. Because if a pastor is faithfully studying and teaching, and he's telling his flock, and he's teaching them over and over again, this is what's going to happen. This is what you can expect. And then he gets phone calls, and he gets people falling apart. And he comes to them, and they say, This is what happened, Lord. And he said, Didn't I tell you this is what's going to happen? People who veer off course and get away from doctrine. And the next thing you know, their life is ruined. And they finally it finally dawns on them. Oh, yeah. I was much happier when I was going to Bible class. And they act shocked. Like, I never thought this would happen. And any pastor worth his salt is going to warn over and over and over and over. Keep your priorities straight. Don't be distracted. It's a slippery slide. How many times have you heard me use that word? Slippery slide. Oh, I don't have to go tonight. I don't have to go this week. I can do this. I can do that. Next thing you know, you're gone. And then when it happens, they come around. I didn't know. And that's when you. That's why I don't have so much hair up here. <laughs> Verse five. For this reason. When I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor should be in vain. There are some really provocative phrases in there. Provocative doesn't mean sexual, by the way, here. It means provoking. It means thoughtful. So we start with... For this reason. Now, what, what did he mean when he says, for this reason? What reason is he talking about? Because believers, especially new believers, are vulnerable and can become confused, frightened, and prone to fall back in their own sinful ways. 
That's the reason. That's why he was concerned for him. Yeah, but you told him over and over and over again. They knew it. You knew it. They knew that you knew it, and you knew that they knew that you knew it. And yet, for this reason, you get, you get the point? Paul was wise. He knew that they could very easily... These were, these were positive believers that had learned the Word. There's no negativity here. But when that adversity comes, it can be so shocking that all that you've learned just goes out the window. It's gone. Just let your emotions, emotions have their way with you. And that can happen to any of us. In fact, usually when a real shocking incident happens, the first thing that we need to do is what? Rebound. <laughs> because it's our tendency, it is our nature to react. And the most... The emotions are there. They're stirred. They're on full alert. None of us wants that to happen, do we? We don't want to be tempted to be angry, do we? We don't want to be tempted to be afraid, do we? But all these things just well up and they're there and the circumstances are right in your face. What are you going to do? And most of us will just succumb at least at first. We'll get angry. We'll be afraid. Whatever it is, and then all of a sudden, oh yeah, yeah, I remember. Oh, faith rest. Yeah, okay, got faith rest. Oh yeah, vengeance is the Lord. It's not mine. Okay, I remember that. All right, and then you can move on. But you have to acknowledge that first initial shock when you just allow that to take over. I don't want to see any question marks on your face out like that, out there, like you don't know what I'm talking about. I know you do. I know you do. You know that I do, and you know that I know that you do. <laughs> I'm not trying to be Paul. I'm just trying to make a point there. Okay. <clears throat> and then he says, when I could endure it no longer. Now, this is a very interesting phrase. Look at it. I could endure it no longer. Now, this is a Paul. The Apostle Paul said, I can't endure I couldn't endure it anymore. Is he saying that, is this saying that uh, Paul couldn't endure the possibility that they weren't enduring? Is that what it's talking about? Was this a lack of faith rest on Paul's part? Was he worrying? Well, look what it says. When I could endure it no longer. Doesn't that sound, at least on the surface, like it could be fear? Or it could be worry? Lack of faith rest? Well, we got to look at this. And that, at least you would have to admit, these are very interesting possibilities. Part of the answer is in the word endure. The word is stego, S-T-E-G-O. It's a participle, present active. Now, a participle here, the way this could be, uh, could be translated would be when Paul could no longer be an enduring one. See, Usually, participles have an ing on the end. And the word means to cover over in silence, to hold out, to forbear, bear, or to bear with or endure. So it 
automatically when we see what this word actually means, it doesn't sound like he it, it, like it's fear or worrying. He was holding out. There was pressure building. And he was holding out or bearing with it. That's what that word means. Now, here's further explanation. Paul was an apostle who had the responsibility to look out for the spiritual well-being of the believers in his in the churches he established. Y'all understand that. What he couldn't endure was not knowing the facts he needed in order to make the right decision. He could no longer hold out in making a decision. You see, he wasn't fretting and he wasn't uh, lacking faith rest because he wasn't trusting God to take care of the believers in Thessalonica. You could easily conclude that by reading that, couldn't you? That's not what he was doing. The pressure and the holding out and the enduring wasn't whether God was going to protect them or not. It was all over the pressure that was building up in him as the authority and as the, the guy that had the weight of responsibility to make a decision that affected the well-being of believers that looked to him for guidance. That's where the, the bearing and holding up was taking place. And it got to the point he couldn't bear it anymore without making a decision. He had to make a decision. So he could no longer hold out in making a decision. So he made a command decision to send Timothy to get the facts. The problem was Timothy was needed there. That means there where they were currently stationed. But he also was needed in Thessalonica. This was the dilemma. This is what Paul was struggling with within himself. was the decision. I'm in charge. I've got to do something. And the longer he waited, the worse it got. And then he, he said, okay, I can't put this off anymore. I've been trying to weigh it. I don't have the facts that I need. And so I've got to get the facts. And I don't have this in my notes, but this is for anybody that's in charge, anybody that has authority or in the leadership position, they need to recognize the, how imperative it is to get the facts before you start doing something. If you just impulsively do something without getting the facts, you're going to pay the consequences. So he made a, a command decision to, send, to get the facts. The problem was Timothy was needed there as well as in Thessalonica. Paul was wor was not, wasn't worrying. He was wrestling within himself over an important pressing decision. You got that now. So when you see that he could no longer endure it, when I could no longer endure it, when I could, or what it says, I could, I could endure it no longer is the way it's phrased. What is the it? The it is, oh, I'm just biting my knuckles down, my, my fingernails down the second knuckle because I'm so afraid of, about their safety. That is not what it was about. He could not bear any longer not taking charge, making a command decision, and moving on. That's what that's talking about. And that's not worry. And it's not a sin. This is the last part. I don't know how far I can get on this, but this is very interesting. These phrases just blew me away. He said, I also sent to find out about your faith. Now, I'll show you why that's so interesting. Oh, let me... Oh, 
Let me get right here. Were y'all reading ahead? Don't read ahead because you'll spoil it. Here's the question. Was Paul more concerned about their safety or their faith? What does it say? Their faith. Oh, boy, when I saw that. You know, you can read through things and you say, okay, well, you know, I see that. I got that figured out. And then it just hits you like a spotlight in the face. He's, what is he concerned about? He's concerned about their faith. So I think I have a question here. Yeah, what, what was Paul more concerned about, their safety or their faith? And, of course, it was their safety, I mean, their faith. Of course, he was concerned about their safety, but he was more concerned about their faith. This stresses the importance of what a person believes. And then when you think about the importance of what a person believes, isn't that what he was talking about? He was concerned about are they continuing to apply the doctrines that he had taught them? Are they thinking divine viewpoint? Did they really believe what he told them? That was more important to Paul than whether they were being killed or not. Whether they were being tortured or not. Was their faith. Now, that's, that's a major thing right there. Most people don't think what a person believes is any big deal. That's, isn't that the truth today? The idea is you believe what you want and I'll believe what I want. And it really doesn't matter if we have different beliefs. Because there's so many different beliefs. Who's to say one is better than another? Isn't that the philosophies today? That's why... Why do you think people feel so free to come up and tell you these bizarre beliefs they have? I can't... People look like they're sane. They come, they're dressed. They can speak English. They're educated. And you start talking about spiritual things and it's like they step right out of... The, what is that? The, the, the twilight zone. You, you, you just know, illustration. You know what a Mormon believes? A lot of Mormons don't even know what they believe. But if you know what a Mormon believes, and you know, they're not a very uh, highly educated, sophisticated, socially acceptable, successful, financially successful people who are Mormons. And you start talking about their faith, well, what do you believe? Well, there was a star called Kolob, and these these guys came from there, and they went to this other place, and they started inhabiting this, and literally, and they start going on, and you're just thinking, are, are they hallucinating about a science fiction novel they read? What is the deal here? And they're serious. And but here's that's that's strange enough, isn't it? I mean, that's enough to. But here's the thing: if you were if you say, well, you know, I don't believe that at all. I believe that God created the heavens and the earth from nothing in an instant. And that Jesus Christ is His Son. He came to earth to take care of our sin problem. You just give them that whole thing. And you might think, well, I'm going to take issue with that. They might be upset because your differences is as far as the east is from the west. And they say, oh, well, yeah, that's fine. That's cool. You know, We can fellowship. We can come on in. Let's, let's have some coffee. Let's... And you think, how can that be? How can we be so extremes in what we believe and them think that it's no big deal? And the reason is because of what I just said. They think essentially all beliefs are the same. You got yours, I got mine. Who cares? And it boils down 
when they say, who's to say that one belief is better than another one? And here's the answer right here. God. God says that it makes a difference. And when you start thinking about it, what you believe determines where you'll spend eternity. Isn't that true? It determines what your life will be like here on earth, what it will be like after you die. It determines who you are, what you think, what you say, what you do, and how you do it. I don't know about you, but I would say that's pretty important. Wouldn't you? And yet today, people think that it doesn't matter what you believe. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you know some doctrine, especially you know at least how to give the gospel, you must impress upon people how important it is that they believe the right thing. Because the believing the wrong thing will cost you the second death, eternity in the lake of fire, completely separated from God for all eternity. That's how important it is that we believe the right thing. There's more in these verses that meets the eye, isn't it? They're very challenging when you slow down and really dissect them. And you're trying to ask the questions. You're trying to find out what they're actually saying. The Word of God is powerful. It makes us think about things normally we would never even enter our mind. Let's close. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Your Word and that You care enough for us to have revealed Yourself to us given us the grace system of perception, everything that we need in order to grow in grace and knowledge. Help us to keep our priorities straight because we are very frail. We are feeble creatures that can be distracted so easily. Our momentum can be stagnated by just one or two decisions. We desire to be conformed to the image of Your Son. And we can't do anything about it other than exploit the grace that You have given us to grow and learn and apply. And we can't even do that without Your help. So we give You all the glory and praise and our hope, our confidence is in You. We pray this in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.